Well, good morning, church family. I am so glad that you are with us today. Um, If you haven't been with us over the last couple months, we are walking through the book of Galatians together in a sermon studies that we're calling free. And so if you would, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible. Or if you did not bring a a Bible, feel free to grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. Um, You can take that home and make it your own. That is our gift to you this morning. But we're going to turn to that passage that was read. It's in the book of Galatians. Now, the book of Galatians is in the New Testament. It's in the second part of the Bible. It's right in between 1 and 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. And then when you get there, we're going to be in chapter 4, which is the big number, and then verses 8 through 20, that's the small numbers. So go ahead and make your way there this morning. As you find that, I have a very simple question, and a question I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I would like to know from all of you in this room, has there ever been, when you look at your life, look back at your life, has there ever been a season that you're, that you're not real proud of? Any of you? Me and like five others, okay, almost all of you, right? There's been some seasons where you, you haven't been at your best, right? Where you have not uh, maybe lived uh, the life exactly as God has called you to live it. Well, I would... As I was thinking about that this week and about this whole text that we're going to be reading, one of the the seasons that were very difficult for me that that God quickly brought to mind was actually happened. It happened in my second year pastoring here at at First SF. Um, If you remember, some of you were here at that time. Most of you were not here at that time. Those first two years, we had much to be grateful for. There were some really neat things that happened in that time. But looking back, I would say that those were two of the more difficult years of really my entire life. Now, the reason for that, I was 26 years old when I became pastor of this church, which is just absolutely crazy. But with that, I felt this real need to prove myself. With my young age, my inexperience, I thought if I come in, I've got to prove myself. And so, while yes, I did all the motions, I, I prayed, I read my Bible, I did sermons, I did all of these different things. Inwardly, there was this belief that had begun to, to creep in, and it's a very dangerous belief. It was the dangerous belief that if this church was going to grow and it was going to flourish and it was, he- it was going to heal, it had gone through a very difficult season, if all that was going to happen, that it primarily was up to me. That began to take root. And so with that, it's a lot of pressure. And so what did I do? I put a lot of work into this church. I literally poured every waking moment, every ounce of my energy, of my thought life, went into helping this church to rescuing, in my own mind, this church with all of my ability. Well, all of that went really well until it didn't, right? I can remember about that two-year mark, there were a number of things that happened that brought me discouragement. Uh, A number of the plans that I had made did not work out like I had planned on them working out. Uh, Some situations where I felt like we were going to grow, all of a sudden we slowed down, things different happened, all my expectations that I had for my first years in ministry at this church, those soon dwindled away, and I realized I had neither the wisdom nor the strength to shepherd and pastor this church like God had called me to. I could not do it on my own. It was at that point that these cracks of my own self-sufficiency began to reveal themselves, right? I I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of anxiety that all of a sudden I'd be found out that I, I wasn't capable of pastoring this church. And so where that came out was in frustration and anger. Now, if you were here, you wouldn't have noticed these things. I didn't outwardly live out in frustration and anger at the church family, but I will tell you where that revealed itself. It revealed itself in my home. 
Because it was there that that inner anger and frustration would come out at at Rachel when it wasn't deserved at all. It would come out in a a raised voice with our one or two-year-old son, I guess three-year-old son at that point, our son Brady. It would come out in being frustrated over the smallest things. These fears and anxieties were literally taking over. They were overwhelming my soul, and I felt lonely in it. I didn't bring it out. I didn't share that with anybody. It was an extremely lonely period of my life. I have no doubt that if I had continued down that path, it was going to be a very quick ministry exit for me here at First SF. But I want to tell you what happened. Right about that two-year mark, probably a little bit after that, in one of those episodes where my own brokenness had unfairly poured into my family life, um, I was away, and all of a sudden I got a call, and it was Rachel. I picked up my phone, and I quickly realized this wasn't going to be one of those, hey, Ryan, can you go pick up something at the store kind of phone calls. I could hear it in the, the tone of her voice. Rachel, in that phone call, very gently and, and very carefully and yet very firmly delivered a message. She said, Ryan, the way you are acting right now is neither who you are, neither is it who God has created you to be. I'll never forget it. She said, Ryan, I love you, and I'm going to love you. I love you, but you're not okay, and staying here is not okay. She delivered it very strongly. Now, I would like to say I just immediately said, Rachel, you're right, but what happens when somebody gives us a truth like that? We get defensive, right? I felt like she was attacking me, and I I felt defensive, and I, I began to blame other things. I began to point out other things that were happening, but by the grace of God, he used that one conversation with Rachel to eventually bring me to my knees in repentance. He began to use that one conversation where Rachel was willing to say a very hard truth to her husband to reveal these idols that I had been setting up in my life, the idol of self-sufficiency the idol of of my own plans and dreams for this church, the idol of of desiring recognition, all these things. All of a sudden, God began to show me all of these things were what I was worshiping. It was not him. And by his grace, he used that conversation with Rachel to bring me back to himself. There's a statement that one of my friends uses very regularly, and I want you to write this down, and I want you to personalize this for yourself. He says this, In my life, I need to build bridges of relationships that are strong enough to bear the weight of truth. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read that with me. I think it's going to be on the screen here, okay? Let's read it together. In my life, I need to build bridges of relationships that are strong enough to bear the weight of truth. You see, Rachel in that phone call delivered a a truth into my life. And let me just say this, it was not a light truth. It was a weighty truth. It was a painful truth. Those words hurt me. They cut me. But because of the relationship, because she delivered them through the vehicle of this relationship that had been developed, our relationship was able to bear the weight of that truth so that I could receive that truth. Does that make sense? It was the relationship that allowed me to hear and to receive this truth that in the end brought me back to Christ. It brought me back to being a Christ-like pastor and a father and a husband. We all need these kind of relationships. And what sets apart this passage in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4, 8 through 20, is that we see this kind of relationship. Now, if you've been with us over this sermon series, you know up to this point, the first three chapters 
Paul has been giving us a ton of truth. He's been giving us a ton of doctrine, right? He's told us in every conceivable way possible that our salvation, that our approval and our standing before God is a gift of his grace that was bought with a tremendous price, the price of Jesus on the cross, but that it could not be earned on our own, right? There's nothing that we can do or, do, do or perform or, or work to earn God's approval. It comes because of what Jesus has done for us. He's told us this, that we cannot earn it, that we cannot merit it based on anything that we do. He's given us a lot of doctrine. But friends, what we see in this text is both this same truth, which we're going to look at again this morning, but we also see the vehicle of relationship that allowed these Galatian believers to, to hear this truth. There was a relationship between Paul and the Ephesians that, that allowed him to bring a word of truth that they desperately needed to hear. They were in danger of drifting from the faith. And friends, here is what I would submit to you. Each one of us in our Christian walk can easily, easily wander from the gospel. We can easily set up little idols in our own heart, and we can go back to the slavery of those idols, which we're going to talk about. But God, in his grace, has given us people around us to help speak words of truth, to help speak the gospel, to help remind us who we are in order to bring us back. And that's what we see in this text. My question for you at the very beginning is this. Do you have any Pauls in your life? Do you have any Rachels in your life? Here's another question. Are you a Paul to someone else? Do you see your role in the, your Christian relationships as, as the same way that Paul sees his role? These are the questions I want us to look at. And so in this sermon, really, there's two parts. We're going to see both the truth that Paul wants to convey, and then we're going to see the bridge, the relationship that he has with these believers that, that helps that truth to be received. Okay, so the first thing, the truth. What is Paul saying here? Well, it's not that different than what he has said the last few weeks. He says this, trying to earn God's approval through your own efforts equals a return to slavery. He says, trying to earn God's approval, his love, his, his acceptance, his salvation through your own efforts equals a return to slavery. Now, Paul talks a lot about slavery, but here's the thing. He's not talking about physical slavery, right? He, he, but the picture is the same. He's talking about a people who are in chains, a people who, who are oppressed, a people who are in captivity, that they have no power to free themselves spiritually. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about slavery. And we see a picture of this in verses 8 through 10. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, he's, so he's taking them back to before their salvation. He says, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, and that's a tremendous difference, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, this passage is both interesting, but it's also very surprising what he's saying in this text. It's actually a little bit scary. Let me show you why. In verse 8, he takes them back to their spiritual condition before they knew Jesus, right? He says, before you knew God, before you were known by God, before you had a relationship with God, what does he say? You were enslaved to those who are not gods. What's he talking about? Well, he's taking them back to this, this pagan belief that a multitude of gods controlled the lives and the destinies of the people of that culture. If you were to go back into ancient culture, there was this myriad of gods, and, and if you wanted things to go well in your life, you had to appease those gods, right? 
You had to work and go through rituals and ceremonies to make sure that they were on your side. So for instance, maybe you're a farmer and you desperately need rain. What do you do? You go to the temple and you, you offer sacrifices and you work really hard to try to appease that weather god so that you will get your rain. Maybe you are traveling by sea. What do you do? Well, you have to work to peace Poseidon, who is the, the god of the sea, in order that your travels will go okay. If you want to get pregnant, you go to the fertility god. If you want to get married, you, you go to Aphrodite. I mean, you, you have all these gods, but if you want them to do what you want them to do, if you want to control your god, what do you do? You have to appease that god. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. You have to do rituals and customs in order to gain their favor. Now, as you look at that, you may look at that and think, well, my goodness, we've come a long way from that. We don't have idols. We don't think there's all these myriads of gods that we have to worship and serve, that if if we do these things, it's going to make us happy. Well, don't be so quick. (laughs) I want you to listen to this definition of idolatry. It's by an older pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this. He says, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone, okay? Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts my time and attention, my energy and my money. So with that in mind, Paul's looking at them. He says, you used to serve idols. Friends, is our culture any different? Think about the many things that we put in place of God. We think, if I just have this, then I will have life. Then I will have joy. Then I will have identity. Then I will have significance. Think about those things. In our culture, do we not work to appease the God of money? Do we not work to appease the God of of being a, a, a good, solid producer at work? Do we not work to appease the God of success, the God of sex, the God of leisure, the God of of having the perfect family, the God of being married? We live and we pour our lives into these things. We make them the, the central thing that we're going after instead of God himself. Well, Paul looks at this and he says, apart from God, that's what we all do. Our, our, our hearts, it's literally an idol factory. If, if one idol doesn't give us what we need, we just go and look for another idol to give what we need. It's a continuous cycle where these idols never deliver on their promises. He says, and that's why you are enslaved. You're caught up in this cycle of seeking from things that are not the true God, the things that only the true God can bring. A relationship with him is the only thing where you can find significance and joy and yet you look for it in these created items. It says that you were enslaved. But in verse 9, what does he say? But now, this is what you used to be. You used to be enslaved to all of these idols, but now that you know and are known by the true God, now that you've been adopted into his family, now that you have received his salvation through grace by faith, now that you have all this, why would you go back to your slavery? He says, you're free. You're no longer a slave. Why would you go back now this is where it gets interesting it's easy to think in verses 8 and 9 that what's happening among these gentiles is that they're going back to their old pagan idol worship that's what you automatically think right but then what does he say in verse 10 what does he say that they're doing that that they're going back to their slavery what does it say it says you observe days and months and seasons and years hmm what's he talking about here they're not going back to their old pagan idols They're not going back to the temple for worship of all these things. What are they doing? 
He's talking about Jewish practices of holiness. He's looking at these Gentile believers. He's saying, you guys are observing all of these Jewish holidays, these special years, these special observances, thinking that you need to do so in order to gain God's approval. This is an absolutely shocking statement because what is he saying here? He is equating Old Testament rules and customs, doing them with the worship of pagan religions in his day. He's saying you're doing nothing different. They're doing it for the God's uh, their approval, and now you're checking off the, all these boxes for your own God's approval. You're still in slavery when you act like that. Now, in today's terms, what would he say to us? Well, I think he would look at us as a church, and he'd say, hey, here's the deal. If you're one of those individuals, and you're here, and you come to church every Sunday, man, and you pray, and you, you study the Bible, and you you give an offering, maybe even you go on mission trips, you do all these things, but if you do those things, thinking that by doing any of those things, you're in any way earning God's love or approval, friend, you're no different than the pagan religions around us. You say, but, but Paul, I, I pray a lot. He would look at you and say, big deal, Muslims pray more than you probably do. You say, well, well I study the Bible. He says, yeah, so did Jehovah's Witnesses. You say, but I, I attend church every Sunday. He says, Hindus worship all day long. You say, I go on mission trips. He says, Mormons go on much longer mission trips than you go on. He says, if your Christianity is only checking off the boxes so that you can earn God's approval, your Christianity is no different than any other pagan religion in the world. Christianity is utterly different. This is a very harsh statement that Paul is making to these Galatian believers, but here's the reason he says it, because he knows they are made for so much more. Paul longs for us to understand this truth. It's going to be on the screen. As Christians, we are not slaves to religion. We are sons and daughters in a relationship with the great King, our God. We are in a relationship. This changes everything, friend. He says, you don't check off all these boxes in order to God, earn God's approval. He says, because you've received this tremendous gift of salvation through grace, by faith, because you've received it, now you do all these things in response to your salvation, not to earn it. You have a relationship with God. You don't have to earn that. You have it. So we spend time praying. We spend time reading his word because we want to know him. We want to get to know him more. We want to be useful for his kingdom and for his will and for his works around the city of San Francisco and among the nations. He says it totally changes everything about why we do what we do. I want you to think about how deceptive this can be. What if Satan's primary strategy in your life is not to get you to do bad and horrible things, but instead for you to do all the right things, but for the wrong reason? thinking that by doing the right things that you in some way are earning his favor and approval. It's a very dangerous, seductive message. And it's why these Christians had fallen into it. He reminds them, this is who you are. He does the same thing that Rachel did to me. He says, the way you're acting right now is neither who you are nor who God has designed you to be. You are not slaves. You are sons and daughters of God. So don't act like a slave. You don't have to earn God. You have him. Live in light of that. It's a tremendous truth. It would have been a harsh truth. They would have uh, take, been taken aback by this truth. But here's the second thing I want us to look at. Why were they able to receive this truth? 
What enabled Paul to speak this message of truth that they desperately needed to hear if they were going to continue on a road with Christ? Why? Well, I would submit to you that he does it through what I would call a Christ-centered friendship. The bridge that he built with these individuals that could bear the weight of this truth that he is bringing to them is what I would call Christ-centered friendship. Friendships that are strong enough to give and receive truth without the bridge crumbling quickly down. As I studied this passage this week, for a long time, I'll just admit, these next verses, 11 through 20, I was like, how does this fit in with Paul's whole argument? He's talking about grace, salvation by grace through faith, and then all of a sudden he's talking in these weird ways like, what does this have to do? Again, I think it reveals this kind of relationship that we need in our lives. Let's read it together, verse 11. He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, again, this is this language of brothers. There's a love. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So in these first few verses, Paul is highlighting the, the history of his relationship with these believers. He says, I came to you as you were. In other words, Paul, he traveled to them. He, he got to know them. He sat with them in their struggles and in their pain and in their situations that were happening in their life. And in the meantime, what did he do? He shared the gospel with them. They received the gospel, and their response was to receive Paul. We don't know what's happening here, but we do know that Paul had some kind of physical ailment that they had to care for. And so their history together it was long. It was one that had included acts of sacrificial love. You say, well, what was Paul's ailment? What was wrong with him? We don't know. We aren't certain, but it looks like there was something to do with his eyes. Otherwise, verse uh, 15 doesn't make much sense when, they, when he says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. I, we don't know why they would have had to do that unless it was something with his eyes. But in any, and it doesn't matter. Either way, what it's saying is there was this friendship, this relationship that was built. Paul became as, as they were, and they cared for Paul. <clears throat> the gospel was at the center of it all. So here's what I want to ask this morning. In this relationship where he's able to deliver truth, what was the goal of Paul's relationship with these believers? What was the goal of his friendships that he, he made all around the nations as he began to pro proclaim the gospel? We see that goal in verse 19. It says this, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until what? Until Christ is formed in you. The goal of a Christ-centered friendship should be very, very clear, friends, and that is this growth in Christ-likeness. Paul looks at these believers, he says, I am willing to do whatever is necessary in your life with one goal, that Christ is formed in you. So hear this, a godly friend is not just somebody who kind of loves you in a general way. Hey, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, I just kind of love you in this general way. No, a godly friend, a spiritual friendship is someone who looks at you, but they have a vision of who God is making you to be. They have this bigger picture. They see you where you are. They love you where you are, but they say, I love you not to leave you. I love you enough not to leave you there. I want what God wants for you. They have this bigger vision for who you can be, and so they're saying, I'm willing to give everything to help you to get there. 
I want Christ to be formed in you. The main priority in our relationships with one another, I don't know if you realize this, I hope you will, the main priority of our relationships with one another is to help one another to take one step closer to Christ. That's our goal. As we come together on Sunday morning, as we come together in community groups, as we come together one-on-one over lunch, there's a lot of things that you can talk about, friends. But here's the question. Are you seeking to help that other person whenever you're interacting to take one step closer to Jesus, to be like him, to be formed in Christ, as Paul says in this statement? That was his goal. I wonder how many of you, your friendships are, actually have that same goal. That's what you're thinking about. That's what you're praying about. It's interesting. Paul, um, in verse 17, mentions another group of leaders who had gained influence with these Galatian believers, and he notes that their motives were very different than his own. Verse 17, he says, They make much of you. In other words, they're flattering these Galatian Christians. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Why? That That you may make much of them. What's he saying here? He's saying the same thing that most of us look like. If we're truly honest about the way we look at our friendships, what are we always asking? What can I get out of it? He says, they're flattering you. They're telling you all these things that you want to hear. Why? So that you will like them. It's really not about you. It's about you liking them. It's about what they can gain in the relationship. I wonder, as you think about your relationships in this church, how do you look at those relationships? Do you look about what you can gain? Or are you looking about what you can give? Are you using people or are you investing in people? I think Paul's example is an important one here. He says, I'm willing to do anything to help you be formed in Christ. I want you to grow in your walk with Christ, and I'm willing to do it. So the question becomes, how does Paul do that? How does he help these other Christians to grow in Christ? How are you in your own relationships, called to help one another to grow in Christ. Well, what's the content? The content, very simply, is truth. It's truth. Look at verse 16. He says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So historically, he had this great relationship, but all of a sudden he says, Now there's a danger that they may see him as an enemy. Why? Because Paul is willing to tell them not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. He's willing to give them truth, even when it means that it may hurt. I'll tell you this, when Rachel first called me that day, those words felt not like truth, they felt like an attack. That's why my, def- my defenses went up. She seemed in that moment like she was an enemy, but was she an enemy? Absolutely not. She was simply giving me the truth that was for my good, to bring me back in my relationship with Christ. In our world, friends who tell us what we want to hear are valued. Are they not? We want friends who will flatter us. We want friends who will, repro- they will respond to our problems with, well, you just do whatever makes you happy. That's the kind of friend that we want. And the result is that in our culture, friendship often involves mutual encouragement towards sin rather than mutual encouragement toward Christ. We're not going to speak truth to somebody if it's all about us. If we're wanting them to like us, if we're wanting them to always think highly of us, we're not going to say the hard words because it's about us. That's not the case with Paul. Paul was the kind of friend who said, I'm willing to say what needs to be said. 
And friends, we need people in our lives who will do this. We need people who will look at the spiritual reality of our lives and say, hey, there's a little bit of idolatry here. Hey, there, there, there's a little bit of this uh, self-sufficiency, Ryan, that I see in your life right here. Hey, are you doing that to please God or are you doing that to find the approval of men? We need people who can see into our lives and be able to speak these words of truth. I love Proverbs 27, verse 6. It says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I love it because it's honest. It doesn't, he doesn't say there is no wound. But what does he say? He says there's purpose in the wound. Faithful are the words of a friend, even when they're telling us the thing that we don't want to hear. Now, does that mean we always go around just picking out one another's faults? No, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. We speak truth to one another. Almost all the time, that's going to include one thing, that we push one another back to the gospel, that we remind one another of who we are in Christ. We remind each other of of what Jesus has done for us. We remind one another of, of, of the incredible identity and significance and life and joy that can be found in God more than in the idols of our lives. We push one another. We encourage one another. We fill our conversations with truth. That's what a Christ-centered friend does. So again, I ask, do you have these people in your life? Are you doing this in other people's lives? The last thing I want us to look at is verse 19 is is the heart of a spiritual friendship. A heart of a Christ-centered friendship is sacrificial love. Again, verse 19 He says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I appreciate this. He says, he compares his love to, to the willingness of a mother to go through significant pain for the benefit of that child, right? I'm appreciative of this because here's the reality when it comes to Christ centered relationships. Building them is not easy. You don't just become a friend overnight. For those of you who have lived in San Francisco very long, you know San Francisco can be a very isolating city. It's hard to build these kind of friendships. It's hard to to get to know people in this way. And that's what he's talking about. He says, I'm willing to go through the pains of childbirth to see Christ formed in you. What an incredible picture. Uh, Think about bridges. Bridges are not built overnight, hopefully, right? I mean, I could go out. Maybe I could go out and I could build a bridge overnight, but what's going to happen when a car tries to go over that bridge? It's going to crumble, right? It can't sustain the weight. No, bridges that are solid, bridges that hold up the weight, take time and they take much sacrifice. Take the the Golden Gate Bridge, our beloved bridge. Think about how long it took, four years to build the Golden Gate Bridge. If you were to build it today, it would be at a cost of $1.3 billion. Significant cost. 11 people died trying to build the Golden Gate Bridge in tremendous sacrifice. But now, years and years later, what happens? Millions upon millions of cars cross that bridge over and over every day because it can bear the weight of that. Friends, if you're going to have spiritual friendships that can bear the weight of truth, it takes time, it takes energy, and it takes sacrifices. It takes you saying, you know what, I'm an introvert but I'm going to willingly go to a community group where I can get to know other believers. It takes you saying, I'm going to give up this free night that I could just lounge and watch Netflix to invite that couple over so that we can really get to know each other. Sunday morning's not enough, friends. Is Sunday morning important? Yes, this is where you can 
talk to people, you can get to know them, but you will never get to know them like you will around your own tables. It costs, it costs something to have these kind of relationships. My question for you is, are you willing to bear that cost? Are you willing to say, I'm willing to go through the pain of childbirth with all that that means? I don't know that pain. Rachel knows that pain, but it's not good. I know that. Are you willing to go through that kind of sacrifice to see Christ formed in the people around you in this room? This is what we desperately need. And so as we close this morning, I want you to approach this sermon in a couple ways. First thing, I want you to approach it from Paul's perspective. Who are the people in your life who you are aching over? Who are the people in your life that you are working and striving and sacrificing so that Christ can be formed in that person? I would ask you that question first because I think most of the time we come into Sundays and we think it's about me. What can all these other people, what can that pastor, what can, all these, what can they do for me? Friend, I'm asking, who are you aching over? Who are you willingly pouring into so that they can be formed in Christ? People in this church need you, friend. If there's no one in this church that you're doing that for, let me just say, we're not living up to our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are doing those things, be diligent. Be intentional. Don't give up. God can produce that fruit. You keep working. But on the other side, I want you to also approach this passage from the Galatians' perspective. Have you ever made yourself accountable to another person? Have you ever been vulnerable? Have you ever truly shared your time and your feelings and your possessions? Have you ever allowed someone to speak truth into your life? Or when that happens, do you just quickly push them away and go on with your own business? That's the question this morning. Have you opened your life to community? Here's a question for you. Have you joined a church? I know for many of you, you come here week in, week out, but you have not covenanted with these people to say, I'm going to make myself accountable to you, and you make yourself accountable to me. It's very easy to come in and out. It doesn't matter if it's here or another church in the city. My prayer for you is that you get involved somewhere, that you covenant with someone, that you make yourself accountable. Have you opened your life to that kind of transparency? Have you joined a community group where people know you in this church? Do you serve so that you get to know the people in the body? God has called us to this. I want you to imagine as we close what it would be like if every one of you in this room came in and your one question that you were asking as you came in on a Sunday morning was this, how can I help these people to move one step closer to Christ? How can I help this person sitting next to me as I'm hearing about their week, as I'm praying for them, how can I help them move one step closer to Christ? How can I meet this new person that this is their first Sunday? How can I meet them and take them to lunch so I can help them to take one step closer to Christ? Imagine if we were here and every single one of us said, I want to encourage you. I want to build you up. I want to love you. I want to do everything I can do until the transformative power of Christ is at work in you. Friends, that's what we're called to as the church. That's who we are. We're a people who help one another to strive toward Christ. My prayer is that it would be so in the days ahead. May we listen to God's truth. May we respond to his truth. Would we not go back to slavery, but would we live in this relationship we have with God, but would we also live in relationship with one another? Relationships that can bear the weight of truth.